And today's scripture passage is found in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, through chapter 10, verse 4. Romans 9, 27 through 10, 4. And that says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You may be seated. Thanks, Justin. Good morning, Reliance. It's good to see you on this. Uh, yeah, I think the smoke is starting to dissipate a bit. Um, before we go into prayer and we look at this passage before, I just want to acknowledge something. Uh, yeah, the bathrooms aren't done. Um, we're working on it. Uh, tomorrow, the tile comes in, and uh, the floor will be starting to be laid. You guys have been patient. Our hope is to get it done here soon, uh, within the next couple of weeks. Uh, women, if you need to use the bathroom, feel free. We'll have somebody escort you to some nice places to go there, use the restroom in the kids' ministry. Men, yeah, we sacrifice, and we'll use the ones outside for a bit longer. Um, another note. You know, over the last, I think I spent four weeks on Romans 9, and today we're walking out of Romans 9. Uh, it was a joy to walk with you, particularly uh, Romans 9 is as challenging as it might be and has been for some churches and some communities. I have found that it was, you were incredibly gracious and incredibly um, edifying through that, going through that together. The doctrine of predestination, no doubt. It leaves us understanding in some ways, uh, lacking, understanding the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, but you were faithful to let me just preach what Paul was preaching to us to understand that we are the vessels of God's mercy, and by grace alone we have enjoyed what God has given for us in that we were and are Gentiles. Today we're going to be transi tra transitioning and moving on from chapter 9, and we'll be heading into more lighter waters, I think. The application of these truths, though, are important, and uh, particularly this one. For I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, 
but not in accordance with knowledge. Who is the them? The Jews. What do they have? A zeal for God. And what do they lack? The righteousness of God, which gives eternal life. When I flew to Jerusalem, I flew out of Dallas and we landed in Philadelphia. When we landed in Philadelphia, we all packed into this plane and headed off to Tel Aviv. It was probably the first time that I got to recognize a group of people, particularly Jews, are, who are zealous for God in their practice. Midway throughout the flight, several men would get up and they would wrap themselves in their cords, a teflon, one around their arms seven times and one around their head, which if you're familiar with the teflon and the box, which has God's word in it, they would recite a blessing and then the Shema. And they practice this routinely, whether they're on a plane, 15, 16, 18,000 feet above land, or whether they're on land, routinely commit themselves towards these religious practices. As I was watching this on a plane, I have a hard time getting out of my row just to go use the bathroom. You get the crossover people. But these men would get up just simply to pray in the midst of a plane, wrap themselves in their religious tradition in order to show God no fear of man around of how might they think of them, might think of them, to follow the prayer, which was essential to showing their commitments to God. Landing in Jerusalem, to go through this, I find it interesting and quite convicting, actually. Uh, have you looked at other traditions and uh, religious traditions and then been convicted by the practice that they do in order to show their zeal for God? I mean, Jews, when we land in Jerusalem, their whole lifestyle is shaped by this effort of zeal for God. It doesn't matter whether it's what they wear or whether what they eat. It's set aside in a way and a manner to show that themselves in their high commitment to God. No pork, no shellfish, because when one shows self-control in what they eat, they honor God in demonstrating their zeal for Him. Friday night, as soon as the sun sets, you can hear the stores close, the gates fall down, only to be opened up on Saturday evening. That all the whole city will close itself to show their zealous love or pursuit for God. And so as you witness, as Paul can testify himself, who he himself being a Jew and knows his Jewish community, they have a zeal for God. It doesn't matter how they use their time. Their time is used to show this. How they eat, how they work, how they dress, how they worship and where they live. Israel is a land in which their history is familiar with while God has interacted with them. And so Israel, whether they're in a plain or on the ground, or far away from Jerusalem, their prayers are directed, and they turn face to Jerusalem to show their commitment to God. And these things all in their tradition would be essential. I ask... Have you ever looked at the practice of another religious tradition? I think in American culture, we do this. And as we look at the practice of other religious traditions, we find ourselves convicted by the high standards they follow 
as they pursue to show their zeal for God. And this is not just a Jewish thing. Latter-day Saints, who we are very fond of or familiar with. Latter-day Saints traditionally follow a three-hour service. Three hours. I like that. Um, Imagine all the things that I could say in three hours. Just several years ago, they reduced it to two. Yet, they submit to it. Three hours on a Sunday and the doctrinal convictions that they hold. So a faithful Latter-day Saint shows their zeal for God by following the Sabbath faithfully, participating in a fast at least once a month, participating in family scripture readings, daily prayers, honoring Mondays for family home gatherings, faithful in tithes, they are willing to respond to any bishop's request and where there's needs within their church. And if you're between the ages of 19 and 21, you'll give two years of your life for going off to college to proclaim the traditions of Latter-day Saints. You will be familiar with the genealogy so as to provide baptism for those who have passed before and have not had the opportunity to respond by faith. And if they satisfy all these expectations and these standards, they will be eligible for temple worship. Latter-day Saints show their great zeal for God. President Gordon Hinckley once said, we have a demanding religion, one that is of high, we have a demanding religion, and that is one of the things that attracts people to this church. You ever looked at the practice of other religious traditions and been convicted by it? You can obtain the righteousness of God by merit, they teach. Not just Jews, but Mormons teach this, but then we can also look to the practice of Muslims. We're familiar with as well here. Faithful Muslim will show his zeal for God by praying five times a day. Sunrise, noon, afternoon, evening, and nighttime, two hours after the sunset. Unlike the Jewish tradition which prays towards Jerusalem, Muslims are told to pray towards Mecca. Or if they're coming of the, of the age in which they can actually take a pilgrimage, they're taught and encouraged at least once time, one time in their life to go to Mecca themselves in Medina so as to show their zeal for God. Have you ever looked at the practice of other religious traditions and been convicted by the practice of it? Whether it be Jews, Latter-day Saints, whether it be Muslims, Paul addresses something that is not just focusing on a Jewish tradition. These truths are, must be understood because what Paul concludes in verse 2 is this. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. What's at stake is eternally important. And Paul has come to the point where he writes to the church to stress its significance. And I pray that we would hear it. Because his prayer, even though they are zealous, is for their salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, in America, we value authenticity. And no doubt, 
there are religious traditions that stress authenticity, high commitment, high practice, and attempts to show their zeal for God. And Lord, as we look at these passages, there is tempting to pit one group against another, to suggest that we're right and they're wrong. Praise God, we're right and they're wrong. That's not what Paul does. And so, Lord, as we recognize that we are the vessels of God's mercy, you've been gracious to us. This is something that we ought to treasure as a public proclamation of what you have done for all people. We are saved by grace and the atonement of Christ. And, Lord, as I pray that we could cherish these words, Lord, that it would so move us to respond like Paul would and like many of the saints before us. In Jesus' name, amen. For I testify, as I read already about them, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Why I said it was eternally, has an eternal consequence, is that if we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 9, we saw this conflict that Paul had. I have great sorrow, in Romans 9, 2, an unceasing grief in my heart, For I could wish that I myself was a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We could testify that just not Mormons, Muslims, uh, or Buddhists, or Hindus, there is a global issue in which there's a People have generally believed that it's by merit that you show your zeal for God. The merit of one's life is the means by which you acquire the righteousness of God. But Paul has labored, has he not, throughout this letter to prove otherwise. And let me show you this as we stress this in the, in the first three verses that we read this morning, the contrast that's put before us. Consider verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. As a result of this, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, that is, though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." It is important that we see this, as I said already, eternally significant. If I were to summarize these verses, the Gentiles didn't even pursue the goal and acquired it. Israel pursued a goal but failed to obtain it. There are two terms in verse 30 and used again in 31 to stress this point. Pursue and attain. Let me read it again for you. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. They didn't even show up. And as a result of even not show up, they obtained this righteousness which produces eternal life, which is by faith. Israel, on the other hand, pursuing, at least trying, pursuing a law of righteousness or for righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Two terms, pursue and attain, carry the idea of like one pursuing a race in order to acquire its goal. The two terms have this idea of having an idea of what to acquire and the means by which acquiring is acquired by merit, 
effort, sacrifice. Some of you know, I enjoy triathlons. I've always wanted to do finish an Ironman, which I finally accomplished in June. If that was not enough, I could try it again in October. In the context of an Ironman race, it is only those who sign up, show up, participate, and finish, get to hear the words at the end, you're an Ironman. Remember, in late June, it was really hot. They had 3,500 contestants, right? Contestants, no, athletes, sign up for the event. But if you remember, at the end of June, it was going to project between 100 and, and 101 and 105 for the day of the race. 1,500 people showed up. And of those 1,000 people that did not show up, the privilege or the reward of being called an Ironman didn't happen. Why? To be an Ironman, you must sign up, show up, participate, and finish. In fact, the heat played a huge role for many of us. I remember coming back into town after my second loop, watching those who were still heading out on their second loop. There was this long hill, and I was going down, praise God, as many of them were going up. I remember watching one individual walking their bike up the hill. Like, the marathon is where you walk if you get the chance to walk. But you're riding a bike and having to walk it. It's awful. They're crying. What keeps them from quitting? The goal. Because those who sign up, show up, participate, walk, ride, whatever, and finish, get to hear the reward, you're an Iron Man. And yet... This individual had already invested a significant amount of time to physically get to the position and was unwilling to give it up. They were pursuing the goal. Why? Because only those who sign up, show up, participate, and finish gain the reward. My point, I'm not talk, Paul's not talking about triathlons, no doubt. You can use the illustration elsewhere. The Gentiles didn't even sign up. They didn't even show up. They didn't even have an idea of like, let's somehow let's earn the righteousness of God. They had nothing on their mind to gain towards this goal. Paul, look at what he says. They didn't even pursue righteousness. They weren't even trying. And yet, they attained it. Imagine that. If an Iron Man, all you got to do is just get one mailed to you. You don't even ask for it. And you get it. Nobody would sign up for an Ironman. Why? Because it's lost all of its value. We're talking about eternity. A life in which there is no death, no sickness, no disease. Talk about the end of wars. Nation at peace with one another. Knowledge of God throughout all things. Peace with creation. The child will play with the viper in the den. Like, we're talking not a piece of metal that can be chucked away. We're talking about eternity. And here's a group of people, Gentiles, did not show up, sign up, yet somehow attained it. Israel, verse 31, they pursued a law of righteousness or for righteousness. They actually signed up. They showed up. They participated and still to this day do like many religious groups, who believe that by merit one can obtain the righteousness of God. 
Jewish community believed by signing up and showing up and participating somehow could finish and obtain this righteousness. And yet they did not. Why is this eternally significant? Because Paul is going to stress, I hope you understand, we have labored for nine, ten chapters. The righteousness of God is not obtained by merit. It's a gift. It is the gift of God that God can extend to those who respond in faith. And by the means of faith, one is transformed. The Gentiles who have never signed up, showed up, or participated are obtaining righteousness. Why? Because they've come to realize it's a gift. And because it's a gift, it is received by faith. And we've labored at this already. But just so that we might stress this and remind ourselves, what is the law? Paul has already labored to show this. That the law is good, right? The law, as is said in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It had a purpose. And what Israel did, just like sinful humanity has always done, they know the standards of God, and they know it. Why? Because it has been written upon their hearts, Romans 1. And as we understand these standards, humanity has said, well, let's set up the means by which we can acquire that righteousness. The law made these things evident, particularly evident explicitly to the Jewish community. The problem was, as we read in Romans 7 14, we know the law is spiritual, but the problem is, is I'm of the flesh, sold into bondage of sin. The means by which you can fulfill the standard of the law is impossible. And so the Jews saw the intent of the law and thought, well, if we follow it, obtain it, and pursue it, somehow it will result in the righteousness of God by merit. We've seen already, and it's so important for us as Christians to understand this, those who open Christ, the power of the gospel, Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. They signed up. They committed to this thing so that every mouth may be closed and all the world might be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God graciously provides the Jewish society the law. And as a result of providing it to the law, the Jews used the law unlawfully. And how did they do it? They changed just as Gentiles would exchange the truth of God for a lie. The Jewish community exchanged the law for how they wanted it to obtain the law or the righteousness of God. Solidified in 1 Timothy 1.8. We know that the law is good if you use it lawfully. Realizing that the fact that the law is not made for righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinner, for the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers. Who's the law for? For the sinner and the immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And whoever else is contrary to sound teaching. Who's the law for? The law existed to show you you are a sinner. The sinner then takes the law of the Jewish community and lets follow the law to establish righteousness. That was using the law unlawfully. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If only they realized. If only they would have realized. Romans 3, 19, 20. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed. All the world may become accountable God. Because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. They signed up for a race they couldn't finish. Or they created a race that they themselves could not finish. And the Gentiles, somehow, by God's grace, because God will have mercy on who he has mercy and compassion on who he'll have compassion, revealed these things to the Gentiles community. You are saved by faith. Romans 3. If you know this truth, Paul says these words to the church. Stress this point. Why? Because if the church realizes the depth of this reality, it shapes the way that you go out into the world and you watch the world who is desperately trying to earn the favor of God. They are zealous for God. The means to acquire the righteousness of God is not by merit. It is by faith. We in American culture actually value variety of religious traditions. And we think and sometimes even provide false hope in it. Because authenticity saves. And when one shows their authenticity, then God will be gracious to them through their merits. That will send them to hell. The righteousness of God is a gift. The church, those of us, must realize this, as Paul has said in Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God, being gracious to man, sent his one and only begotten. And it was Christ who lived the perfect life and fulfilled the law. And the law, what did it do? I'm paraphrasing this, re- this idea. The law bore witness. It manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets of who Christ was. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for the, all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was demonstrated in his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When there, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law or works? No, but by faith, law, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The Gentiles didn't even show up. And the power of the gospel was this. You didn't show up. You didn't even try. But God's righteousness can be extended to you by faith. And this became for the Jewish community the stumbling stone. Verse 32. Why? Why? This couldn't be true because they did not pursue it by faith as though it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It can't be true. Just as it is written, 
Behold, I lay a Zion, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And yet he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I know this for a fact. One thing I guess what I learned about training for an Ironman is, is you don't become an Ironman on the day of the race. It takes a lot of sacrifice before the day of the race. And this goes for many things, whether you're playing a sport, whether you're investing in a college career, you don't become a doctor. The, the, the means by which you set aside time to become one who is a doctor is the efforts of work, and one day they say, here's your doctorate. And it's the result of nothing that they had done that they acquired it. But here's the challenge for the Jewish audience. One of the reasons that I was going down that hill and I was watching the people walk up the hill on a bike, pushing, walking up a hill, why won't they stop? Because of the incredible amount of time they've invested. You realize this. A 19-year-old kid who'd gone on a two-year missionary journey to proclaim the Latter-day Saint tradition is going to acquire a status within that community that is higher than he once had before he was on that trip. And to leave And to trust in this is to give it all up. The Muslim who's been faithful every day to pray five times a day to face Mecca for 20 years comes to realize this. It's only by faith. What does he give up? Everything. And Paul, of all people, knows this to be true. His family moved from where he grew up to Jerusalem to be trained by the highest and the greatest religious leaders in Jerusalem. They sacrificed everything for him. He learned not only Greek, he was familiar with the the, the Gentile language, he was familiar with the Hebrew, he was familiar with the tradition, he was able to, to argue in the different terms of the Jewish traditions. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And the result to obtain the righteousness of God was not by authenticity or merit, was to lose everything. The Gentiles, can you imagine how offensive that would have been? They don't have to sign up, they just have to respond in faith. They don't need to know Abraham, David. Old Testament, celebrate on the Sabbath, they don't have to be circumcised. It's just by faith. That would have offended many, and it did. And Paul, verse 10, stresses this reality in his response, point two. Brethren, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. They keep running this race and they are going to get nothing. And they run this race in such a way, look what he he acknowledges, the reality I testify about them. And you can see it even today. Not just in the Jewish tradition, but in many traditions. I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Literally, They are ignorant. They think they can get it. And they've fallen into this trap. 
you know, the Jewish community who had the law, they could see its standards, like don't make a God in your own image, like taking out of creation and distorting it. The immorality of the Gentiles followed, followed in it. The Jews would look at the Gentiles, if you remember in Romans 1, 22, and they accused them of these things. Gentiles, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Rather than the Gentiles who were supposed to respond to the righteousness of God evident in them, because God put it to them, in them, Gentiles rejected God and said, we'll make a God that we want to worship. Jews are as guilty as the Gentiles in that for not knowing about God's righteousness, Romans 10 verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish, excuse me, seeking to establish their own. The righteousness of God is a gift. The Jews said, nope, we got too much invested in here. We've ran too far in the race. Exchanged to establish their own. And they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And by condemning the Gentile, they themselves created their own righteousness, committing idolatry. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why? Because the righteousness of God is a gift. He can write it down, embed it into your heart. Because there are people, and I've just used Jews, Paul uses Jews, Muslims, Latter-day Saints, but there is a people that you work with They would say they're not religious, but they have bent their minds to this idea. If I live a decent life, God will be gracious to me. That is idolatry. Do not give hearty approval to it. Because they are seeking to establish their own. They do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They are, in verse 2, ignorant. And yet Israel saw the image of God, literally, Jesus Christ. And after seeing the law being testified and manifested in Christ, after seeing it firsthand, they said, we can do it too. And that was idolatry. Why are these words important for us to understand? Because it'll shape the way that we respond to the world in front of us. Why does Paul teach these things to the church? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to everyone who believes. But how will they believe if no one has spoken? Point three, our response. Brethren, verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I think, you know why I think he talked about predestination? He wants the church to know that God is sovereign. 
It's him who has mercy on who he has mercy. It's him who has compassion on who has compassion. If anyone is able to take the hardened heart, whether it be a Jew or a Gentile, and bring them to repentance, to respond in faith, it's God. And he's not left to trust in his own efforts as the means to transform his own people. And he recognizes that reality. And because he recognizes that reality, his only thing to turn to is to the sovereign power of God. And he pleads with God, please, I pray that you would save them. Romans 12, 10 through 12, be devoted to one another. As Paul moves into the latter section of Romans when we get here in a few months. But being devoted to one another, he stresses the application of these truths. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. And so often the last one is not even considered devoted to prayer. Admitted to uh, the staff a couple weeks ago, one of the reasons I don't like praying is because I believe, this is being honest, just being honest, that my work is more fruitful than stopping and praying to God. Because when we pray, what are we doing, Americans? Nothing. Revivals start because God's people pray to God who changes the hearts of men. And Paul comes to this conclusion. He he pushes the sovereignty of God so high that you are compelled to say, then God saved them. You can't tell me that doctrine's not important. Because Paul says in verse 2, your doctrine then compels you to correct the ignorant by appealing, not through, by appealing in prayer to God that God would convict them that they can't finish this race. You talk to a Muslim and do. They are not ashamed to talk about their faith. Talk to a Latter-day Saint. They're not ashamed to talk about their faith. They actually enjoy it. And you ask them the simple question, how do you know if you're in? And they'll tell you, they cannot be assured because they have to keep at it by merit. What a gift the gospel is to them. The Gentiles who didn't even show up, didn't even pursue righteousness, attain righteousness. Did you not know that the righteousness of God is a gift? And we ought to pray for these things. Peter, as the church is being spread out throughout the world because of persecution, he writes to the church, what do you do now? The end of all things is near. Go hunker down. Be of sound judgment. It's doctrine. Sober in spirit. For the purpose of what? Prayer. Americans, the end of all things is near. This is how we'd read it. 
be sound of judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of nothing. Because we don't believe it does anything. Who changes the heart of a man? God. Whose salvation is it? God's. Who reveals to the heart that the righteousness of God is a gift? God. Then what's our responsibility? Just to pray? No, we pray in light anticipation for the day in which God will allow us to proclaim the gospel in such a way that people would respond. But we don't pray in the the way that we think that we save people. It's God who saves us. Moses. You remember Moses? Exodus 32, he goes on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days. Israel saw the power of God in 10 different plagues. The Red Sea split. They come to Mount Sinai. They see the power of God come before them. Powerful. 40 days he's up on the mountain. That's all it took. The nation of Israel has said, let's, let's make a God that we can actually see. And they built a golden calf, assuming that Moses was gone. Remember God's response to this wickedness, to this idolatry? Exodus 32, 9 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, and that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation, Moses. He was done. God was willing to destroy them. Remember how Moses responded? He appealed to the character and the nature of God. He said, you can't do that. You're merciful and compassionate. You've made promises that from these people, all nations will be blessed. And if you eliminate these people, the people around the world will assume that you are not merciful and compassionate. He appealed to God's character and his promises. And as he did that, we learn, the Jewish society as we do today, learn that God responds to a mediator. Exodus 32, 32. Moses, look at his character. And now, if you will, forgive their sins. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Damn me, Lord, and save them. I've heard that before. If you're familiar with what, and you've been listening with Romans, Romans 9, verse 1. Telling the truth in Christ, not lying, My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing unceasing grief in my heart, for I could pray where there is pray, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul loved his people. And so what is his response? Pray for them. Why? Because God responds to a mediator. Who's our mediator? Christ. Who are we in Christ? Reliance. 
We are sons of God. To whom has God given to those who are sons of God? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do to those within his sons and daughters? He mediates. So that when we pray, God hears and responds. You do more on your knees than with your hands. I have been convicted over this last year, year and a half. I've actually, I won't do it if I don't schedule it. So there are certain times during the day, during the week, that it's non-negotiable. If you want me to pray for you, if you want the elders to pray for you, let me know. Those connection cards, they're important to us. We will pray for you by name. But more than that, when I pray, particularly on Wednesday mornings, I pray for you that you would not be ashamed of the gospel, that reliance would be known as a people who are reliant upon God and express their faith in these ways. Just as Paul loved his people, we recognize that God situates his people in the places that he wants them to be his servants. You have been placed in tri-cities. How often do you pray for those here who are your people? I think Muslims, Latter-day Saints are close, just like Jews. But they were ignorant of this righteousness of God as a gift. But who can help them see the tipping of that reality? God. It's God and God alone can do these things. And so what I want to do is end our time this morning in that reality, prayer. And there are people we ask you and we recognize that we cannot meet as a pastoral staff or eldership. Some of you work at PNNL. Some of you work out at Hanford. Some of you work at the hospital. Some of you work within the school system. Some of you work out on the farms. Some of you are bilingual, some of you are not. Some of you are able to reach others that we could possibly never reach. You think there's reasons for that? Should we not pray for the people that God has placed us, just as Paul was willing to do as well? So I ask you to pray with me. And as we pray, I would ask you to have God bring to memory someone that you should be committing yourself to prayer for as well. Our Father, it is only by the grace of God that we can call you Father. And as we have learned in this wonderful letter, we are all far from you, separated from you because of our sins. None of us, Romans 2, are without excuse, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of this, we know the wages of sin is death. And how great we have recognized that depression still to this day. Death is everywhere. And yet while we were using our tongues and our arms and our legs in rebellion against you, you were patient to us. And even though we didn't seek you and we turned aside to our own way, 
you were patient with us. When there was no fear of you in our eyes, you were patient with us. And at the right time, while we were still helpless in Christ, still far from you, you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the ungodly. You demonstrated your love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as a result of even being enemies of God, you reconciled us to yourself in Christ. And on the basis of your work, we can say, Father, because we are now your sons, because of your mercy. For while we were in the flesh, sinful passions took over us, but now in the Spirit we have life. And we have been introduced to the very throne room by the work of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even make such requests of you. We have enjoyed. Some of us come of different seasons of life. Some of us are young in our faith and some of us are old. Some of us have known you for a long time and some of us are just getting to know you. But the privilege that we have to call you Father, Abba Father, is because of your mercy extending towards us while we were sinners. So we simply say thank you for being merciful to us in that while we were sinners. And as Isaiah said, and as we also would agree, we live in a land with unholy people. While we were ungodly, we live a people, within a people that are ungodly. And they have a zeal for God. The desire to be right with you and to have run a race in a way that you haven't designed. And have we not come to realize that the righteousness of God is a gift established and acquired by the work of Christ alone. For you will not let man boast regarding their salvation, but you will only let man boast in Christ who has given salvation. You have placed us in random places in this city. Some of us are mothers, wives, husbands. Some of us work in random places, weird or great. Some of us work at a pizza pizza shop, coffee shop, the classroom. Some of us work in labs, farms. We don't think that's random. Just as Moses and Paul appealed to your compassion and your mercy, Lord, you are patient with this city. And in light of the knowing your patience, Lord, let us not be a people who are unashamed of your gospel, but confident in what you will do for those who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't open the hearts of men or women or a child. But Lord, I pray that we would be not counted among those who would shrink back, but rather wait, pray, and commit ourselves to being faithful ambassadors, proclaiming the righteousness of God, which is acquired by faith as a gift. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move our church to prayer. Little at first, for those who are not understanding or aware of how it's done, that you would increase it more and more as the day progresses. 
where we can feel the weight in our cities. There is an edge to it, a conflict within it. But in light of all those things, Lord, we know the power of the gospel which can bring hope to it. This is not the only life we have. For those who are in Christ will enjoy its eternity in a kingdom which will never fail, where sickness will never be brought. And so while some of us are near or closer and working near death, Lord, I pray that in those roles that we have within this congregation that we be faithful when the time comes to speak well of Christ. For us as parents who are raising children, let us raise them well. But Lord, it's you alone and you alone that can open the heart of a child or a heart of a teenager or a heart of a college student to respond to the gospel. We are trying to be faithful, but we ought to be faithful in most one thing, praying for their salvation. And Lord, I pray that you allow us to see those days, even in my own home, in the homes in this congregation, in the homes of this Christian community, Lord. Some of us have contact, as we recognize here in West Richland, the diversity of religious traditions, Latter-day Saints, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, I can admit that I can't and I do not know how to reach them. And if I were to take that burden on myself, or any of us were to put it on all of ourselves, we would not be as able to do it as you can. Would you work? Please don't stop. You have been patient and you have said in your word that in the end of days that every nation, tongue, and people will be there to proclaim the salvation of Jesus Christ. Let us see that in our city. Seeing you open the hearts of people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether we have a a moment with an individual, whether we have a lifetime with an individual, Lord, I pray that you allow us to be faithful to respond in prayer for them. And when the hour comes to proclaim that the righteousness of God is a gift, Jesus has paid it for you, it can be received in faith. And I don't want to assume anything, Lord. I don't know if there's anyone in this room who has thought that authenticity is right standing with you. Exchange the glories of Christ for their own merits and their own works. Lord, I pray that they would come aware and be aware of the reality that salvation is only by responding in faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is all we can boast in as the means by which we receive the righteousness of God. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, I pray that they would respond in faith. Make you Lord of their life and cherish what Christ has done for them. And as we conclude this morning in response of these truths, Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to commit ourselves to regular prayer. But more than that, In light of the work of Jesus Christ, we have much to sing about. For who we are in Christ was not done by our own merits, but Christ in us alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?